God. That three-letter word, God, has provoked more discussion, has far-reaching implications than virtually any other word in our dictionary. What does God mean? What are the consequences of faith in God or lack of faith? How has it impacted history? But perhaps the biggest question of all is this. Can you prove God's existence? There's so many that have attempted. There are others that rejected. That is what we will be discussing. Hi everyone, this is Simon Jacobson, Wednesday night, weekly master class. Our topic is, can you prove God's existence? This program is dedicated by John Eisenberg, in memory of my parents of blessed memory, Ernest and Vera Eisenberg, who taught me many life lessons for which I am forever appreciative and grateful. The three-letter word, God, immediately it evokes all kinds of reactions. Some are from believers, some are from non-believers, some are agnostic, faith, believers, agnostic, atheist. I remember writing an article about believers and non-believers, and I actually received a letter from the director of the American Atheist Association because in faith I wrote about many different levels of faith, and he said to me there are so many levels of atheism. There's radical atheism, there's moderate atheism, there's agnostic atheism. So across the entire spectrum, you have everyone has a feeling, an opinion, a thought, and it's not just theoretical, because if there is a God, does that mean that I am obligated to this God? And what does that obligation entail? And if there is no God, what drives my moral and ethical principles. And the debate rages on. You could say in the Middle Ages at some point, there was faith was the dominant feature in most, uh, I would say probably in all civilizations, but then began what's called the Enlightenment, challenging that type of God authority, the church authority, the absolute authority of religious leaders. Science, is known to have become science versus religion, science versus faith. Some called it faith versus reason, with faith being dismissed as just something uh, that uh, foolish people just rely on, superstitious, archaic beliefs. And many thought of the Enlightenment that by now, by the 20th century, the 21st century, there'd be no God left. And yet, faith remains a not just an element, a primary element in millions and millions of lives, if not billions of lives. And the, and the debate rages on. There's so many different angles to take here. So what we're going to discuss, which and all, and, it's all its, uh, and all its derivatives, the question, can you prove God's existence? Of course, on a very basic level, believers say, yes, absolutely. 
And the first argument is made, nothing can create itself. Everything in existence is a result of something that came before it. A tree, there was a seed from a previous tree. A child has parents who in turn are children of parents before them. Every house has to have an architect, every piece of music a composer, every book an author, every painting an artist. So when you see a world like ours, so organized, so structured, it couldn't create itself, that's the most basic, one of the most basic proofs. There are others as well. And yet, you have millions of people that reject that. For the different reasons, Stephen Dawkins and some of what we call our radical resident atheists have their own, their own case. No one says, I can prove God doesn't exist. They can say, I don't need a God. I can explain all of this through natural selection, through other methods and means. In in response, people say, you're just replacing the word God with another word, nature, evolution, biology, intelligent design. Where does that come from? Yes, you may be able to tell me that after the Big Bang, you can describe every step of the way. But what caused the Big Bang? Or what particles were there before the Big Bang? And yet no one side can persuade the other, which would seem to lead us, and I'm speaking now, I won't won't be a referee, but as standing outside of it, if you can't persuade the other side, that means it's not an absolute proof. So of course that leads us to another question. What is proof? What defines proof? And who defines proof? Is empirical proof the only way? In other words, we have to see it, hear it, taste or touch or smell it with our five senses? Obviously not, because we all accept there's the concept of love, of ideas, of things that are not tangible in the sensory world. <clears throat> so then we have other tools. Suprasensory. We sense we have intelligence. We sense feelings. But where does it go and who defines, how far does it go and who defines the parameters of proofs? Karl Popper famously said that a scientific theory not only has to be able to be proven, it has to be able to be disproven. And he uses an example. He says... If someone says God doesn't exist, I'm sorry, that God exists, if God exists, or for that matter, God doesn't exist, it's not a scientific theory because you can't disprove it. Someone says God exists, how can you disprove it? You could say, I don't believe it, or I don't need it, but you can't disprove. So therefore, it's not subject to be called, it's not defined as a scientific theory. So in other words, the whole idea of proof and theories is about proof and disproof. Every proof can be disproved. Those that firmly and absolutely believe in God say it can't be disproven. And it can't. So you could say one second, but you could say the same thing about uh, elves and all kinds of mythical uh, fantasies. You also can't disprove that. So it's true. That may not be going to the category of science. You have to use other parameters or other definitions. Just to show you how broad and complex this may be. But I would submit that a critical component here is not just the intellectual. There's also the personal and the emotional implications. As a younger man, I used to struggle with this question all the time. I still do, for that matter, as you shall see. Because I said to myself, yes, there are very strong proofs, and yet you can live a life not following a God, even if you believe. Look at how many people believe in God and, and argue that God is an absolute necessity and reality and all of that. And yet they don't always live up 
to being ethical, refined, as if God is watching them. So how do you explain that? That dissonance. Let alone people who don't believe. So struggling with this question, I always initially dismiss the argument that every building has an architect, every book has an author. But as I began to think about it, I said, one second, it seems to be a very solid proof. Would anyone say this structure here just happened to become an evolution of years? Or a powerful work of, uh, of, for not even a powerful, any work of literature? The ink just spilled out and it just evolved into these beautiful words? No, that person would be considered crazy, insane. A book, structured book, someone had to write it. Beautiful piece of music, someone had to compose it. You may not know who the composer is. You may never meet that composer. But you have no doubt that there's, if the, the effect indicates there's a cause. Cause and effect. Especially when it's so structured. So why wouldn't we say the same thing, apply the same logic to a universe whose design is infinitely more beautiful and intricate and complex than any work of art or music or literature or architecture? Look at the human body. Look at the efficiency. As much as we try to replicate it through technology, a camera replicating the human eye, an airplane replicating a bird, it's still far from it. It's still a mechanical replication with many flaws and missing components. So you start saying, one second, this argument seems to be a sound argument. So I began to ask a few scientist friends of mine, rationalists, we're not believers, who has said we don't need God to explain the, the human with the universe. I said, but do you need an author to explain a book, to say this, this book was written? Yeah, so why not apply that? And all kinds of explanations. And I came to realize something, which is, an, is I, I want to submit this, that it was the reason it's different is because to say that an architect built this building or an author composed a certain book or a comp- uh, a wrote, uh, authored a certain book or a composer composed a beautiful piece of music, there are no consequences from that. So what? Okay, fine. But if I say God created me and the universe, there are far-reaching consequences than accountability, responsibility. And as soon as our personal bias gets in the way, of course, why would I want to subject myself? I want to live a life the way I like to live. Why would I subject myself to some other authority? So now we have a reason, a bias that should push us to say, I'd rather have no God in my life. Now I've submitted this theory to quite a few people who consider themselves atheists or agnostics. They reject it absolutely. And I say to them, one second. You reject believers by saying that they just resort to belief without proof. And any proof they have is part of their own prejudices and biases. You're supposed to be the open-minded one. So explain to me, how do you know you're not biased? If you were in a court of law, I can prove that you're biased because it has implications. If you knew a judge was sitting in a court of law and he rules against you, and then you find out that he benefits from that ruling, he would have to have to recuse himself because of his prejudice. So why don't you recuse yourself and say, yes, I have an interest, a vested interest in the result that there is no God. Just as a believer has a vested interest that there is a God. I've never found someone that admitted that. Until 
One thing someone sent me, a quote from Aldous Huxley, I think who coined the word agnostic in the first place, the early 60s. A thinker, a great thinker, an open-minded thinker, a free thinker, who called himself an agnostic, and he writes. He writes. Before I present my arguments, I want to state a disclaimer. I have vested interest that there is no God, because then I can do as I wish, especially in the area of sexuality. I tell you, when I read that, I was very impressed. At least he's acknowledging. And now he goes on with his arguments. So I'm not trying to throw aspersions on every person's theory, but we have to be open and honest. There are implications about God. Which brings me back to two biggest questions. What is the definition of God? And second, what is the definition of proof? Before you say, can you prove God's existence, you need to know what we're proving. I have a line that I love from Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Badichever. I quoted in Toward a Meaningful Life. He was once, he invited, talking about the high holidays coming up soon, he invited a neighbor to come with him to synagogue for the high holidays. It was pre-COVID, so there was no issue. And he said, Rabbi, you know I'm an atheist, I don't believe. What's the point? And Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Badichev nonchalantly, without getting upset, said to him, you know, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Think about that. Before we start arguing, yes, no, I believe, I don't believe, what are we believing in? If you're talking about a mythical figure of a man sitting on a throne in heaven with a white, long white beard waiting to strike us with lightning when we misbehave, a type of Woody Allen caricature of God, I would tell you all, I'm also an atheist, I'm also a non-believer. If, however, you give me a definition, or I give you a definition, a completely different one, oh, one second, that's something I would entertain, or maybe even accept. And maybe even not just belief, maybe something very reasonable. So we must ter- define the term. I remember reading once how God has become so, uh, so irrelevant in so many homes and lives that there was a Hebrew school teacher teaching children who were going to public school so they didn't have any religious instruction except Sundays, an hour every Sunday. So at the beginning of the semester, the teacher turned to the children and said to the boys and girls and said, tell me, anything in your life, in your home, that reminds you of God? So this one said a uh, menorah, a challah, a uh, kiddush cup, a seder, Rosh Hashanah, a shofar, Hanukkah, you know, the different symbols people relate to. One little girl was sitting there, nothing. And the teacher was prodding her, tell me, nothing reminds you? Anything. You ever hear the word God? No, we never hear the word God mentioned. And nothing associates with it. Then finally the little girl smiles and says, yeah, one thing, our bathroom scale. Our bathroom scale? What's the connection? She says, every time my mother steps on it, she cries out, oh my God. It's a joke, but it also indicates how God has become almost a non-irrelevant word. And the reason I would say, not a malicious reason, because it became irrelevant because the definition was lost. What do I need to relate to something that is completely irrelevant to me? So it gets back down to what is God. So if we were to pass around, everyone listening right now, if I were to ask you to write down on a piece of paper a few lines, what is God? And besides, beyond the prerequisite supreme being, the creator, the first cause, in your own words, you wouldn't have many papers, many answers that would be similar. 
Because unfortunately, yes, many of us do have a juvenile nursery school vision of God because that's what we were taught. So when you see all these Woody Allen films mocking God in a very uh, intelligent way, that's the God he grew up with. That's the God that many people in the Western world are familiar with. And when you think about it like that, one of the jokes he tells, the two of them I'll share, which really capture the whole thing. So they were sitting at a Seder table, I believe, or a holiday meal, and the atheist niece, the enlightened professor, looks to her uncle, who's the host, and she says to him, you know, you're so fanatic, so irrational. And to prove her point, she says, if you had to choose between God and the truth, which, would you, which one would you choose? And without missing a beat, he says, of course, God. This is Woody Allen's way. Of course, God, between God and the truth. The true answer should be that the true God is the truth. Now, between God and the truth. A second one. A guy comes to a rabbi and says, Rabbi, I hear, I've been seeking my whole life for the truth. And I hear that it's in the Torah. Will you teach it to me? Of course. How much will it cost? He said, how could I charge you? God didn't charge us at Sinai when he gave the Torah. The, Moses didn't charge the people. So of course it's free. He was doubly impressed. He's going to get the secrets of life, the secret of the truth, and for free. They sit down, they open up a Torah, and what do they find? It's in Hebrew. He says, it's Hebrew. He didn't understand Hebrew. So the rabbi says, Hebrew lessons will be $10,000. These are very funny jokes, but they're also destructive in many ways because they feed that stereotype. Now, I'm not going to deny there's such a stereotype that's based on in reality that you do have unfortunate quote-unquote rabbis, teachers, educators. That's how they presented God either in a ridiculous way or a completely irrelevant way, or even worse. Some argue that mo most of the wars in history were in, in the name of God, holy wars. The truth is, not all wars, some were, but not all. World War II, the Nazis did not fight in the name of God. They thought they were God. But regardless of that, the point is, the word God, what does it mean? And then, of course, the word proof. Well, how do you prove things? So let me share with you something that happened. This class that I do every Wednesday, and of course it's archived, so it's available all the time now online. There was a time before pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-everything we're experiencing now. Back in the previous century, when mail was still delivered by camels and donkeys. You get what I'm saying? When I used a typewriter and there was no such thing as a word processor, when this class began, and, and it's then a Thursday night, then it turned to Wednesday night, then the core group that would attend in person, in my own home, um, were, which, uh, were people from the arts and entertainment industry, many. Artists, writers, thinkers, singers, and very spiritual, but not from any traditional source. Most of them would say our spirituality came from Eastern, Far Eastern mysticism, Zen Buddhism, a thing called LSD, and other such experiences. <clears throat> so I remember just thinking as a communicator, you want to connect with the people you're speaking to, even if you may have different opinions, but you want to convey, I realized there was an invisible wall between us. Because here I was sitting with a beard and a yarmulke, you know, a beard and a yarmulke, and 
which was not a neutral, I wasn't projecting a neutral image. They come from a different background, so even before I open my mouth, I'm at a disadvantage. They may be stereotyping me, not intentionally. I may remind one of an angry grandfather that schlepped into synagogue on Yom Kippur against his will, or an irrelevant Hebrew school, Hebrew school teacher that taught them hollow bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah lessons, or even good, nice, warm memories, but definitely not neutral. So I decided to an experiment. I'm not going to use any religious words. I'm going to create my own language. I won't use the word God, I won't use the word ethics or Torah or laws or punishment, reward and punishment. And I created my own language. Let's see how it goes. Instead of God, I used words like the essence of it all, an undefined reality, ultimate truth. For a particularly new age group, I would use undefined layers of unconscious energy. Instead of Torah, I used the word blueprint, a roadmap. Instead of mitzvot, connections. Instead of redemption, Mashiach, Geula, I used the word destination. And here I was pontificating, waxing eloquent on the idea of reaching the essence of it all. The inner essence of ourselves, of reality, of existence following a blueprint, creating connections with the ultimate goal of total and utter fusion between the inner and the outer, between matter and spirit, between the indeterministic and the deterministic, between form and function, between body and soul, and soul, to the point that you have one seamless experience of a transcendent reality within our imminent lives. That was the gist of it. And I went on discussing ideas that came from mysticism and from Hasidic thought from all over, but always using this language, never wavering. The people, I must say, were, they were quite mesmerized, to be honest. They were listening. Wow, this is great stuff. No one asked me where it's coming from. Till one week, one of the people in the class says to me, before the, I begin, he says, tell me, it's been really wonderful. The last few classes have been just awesome. Are you talking about God? <clears throat> and I smiled and I said, yes, but shh, don't spoil it for the others. So he was quiet and I was able to go on. But then finally, obviously, I uh, revealed my secret. And the experiment worked much better than I ever would have expected. I realized more than I even would have imagined the power of language. So we see language as a connector. We can communicate with each other. We can disagree with each other, but we connect. Especially in today's day and age of over-communication. In therapy, don't be silent. The other person, your spouse, will not know what you're thinking. Express yourself. Break your silence. So yes, that has its advantages, but then sometimes we talk too much to the point that words can also separate us. Because I may deliver a word that is innocuous and meaningless to me or not, doesn't have any particular significance and you may go ballistic when you hear that word because your mother went ballistic every time she heard it. So words can also be loaded. And a word like God and religious words definitely are because we have our preconceived notions for good or for bad. By eliminating that, by speaking a language that 
allowed people to hear me without defining the words before I define them allowed for a much purer communication, which itself is in a lesson in life that when you have a disagreement with someone you love and care about, and let's say it's a long-standing one, just use different words. It's not always what you say, it's how you say it. And new words can create an opening. And that's not being manipulative. It's a way of communicating. Sometimes certain words are just blocks. You say a certain word, right away people go, they're very emotional about it or subjective about it, all of us. So let's explore that for a moment. If you see God, not in that juvenile nursery school style, but like what I've been describing, as a higher reality, the essence of things, something we all think about. What makes us tick? What makes the universe tick? Thinkers, philosophers, philosophers, romantics, poets have all explored this question and continue to. What's behind it all? And we've discovered in a scientific way that substance, items in this physical matter is made up of elements and elements are made up of molecules and molecules of atoms and atoms of subatomic, subatomic particles. And you keep going down the rabbit hole, how far down? Who knows? The same thing in the human being. We have limbs and organs, but beyond that there's different structures and systems all the way to the cellular level, DNA, genetic material. All of them are invisible. Some will never be seen because not just they are too small for the human eye, even microscopes. But we extrapolate. We see their effect. So we know there's a cause. How do they discover a black hole? Black hole, by definition, means you can't see it. Because the gravitational pull is so intense, it pulls even light. doesn't allow light to escape. But we saw its effects. You start seeing other bodies moving in irregular patterns. It's like seeing something, suddenly you see metal moving. You must know there must be a magnet somewhere. You may not see it, but you can extrapolate. So when you think of it that way, and let's include, of course, psychology, you see a person's behavior. You see a person, for example, gets angry again and again. You can trace it and say, one second, what happened? What kind of trauma did this person experience? It's not always traceable in that way, but very often it is. Our childish, our our young, impressionable years when we were children, what happened? Those things are invisible. It's 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 in the past. It's embedded somewhere, buried in our psyches and our in our unconscious or superconscious. But it emerges through different symptomatic reactions. So this is common intelligence. When you think of it that way, and you say, okay, you know, when you go to the core, you will get to God. Not necessarily in a physical sense, conceptually that the essence of all is some higher reality, and we experience it through transcendence, many people who will call themselves non-believers say, I fully identify with that. I just don't call it God. Because God for me is some guy in, this, in heaven, some mythical creature, figure, people who are foolish just believe in him, and they do all kinds of things in the name of God, including very unhealthy things. So of course, who would want to have a God like that? But that's not the definition. You've allowed that definition to be hijacked. So really what it comes down to is redefining. A lot of the work I do is exactly that. You may be surprised to hear this, but when I give a talk or a class or write an article, write an article, 80%, not exactly 80%, but good, close to 80% of 
the work to be done is undoing stereotypes. Yes, in an audience, even an intelligent audience. And stereotypes do not see it necessarily as a bad thing. People just have preconceived notions. It could come from parents, it could come from educators, it could come from the media, it can come from films, a combination of all of above, social mores, social standards, and you're contending with that, especially when you're dealing with matters. We're not talking about real estate tips. Even there, people may have distorted views. But a good education is that you don't ignore that because you want to unravel. You want to teach people to think about something with a fresh set of eyes, not be blinded or distorted or in any way biased by a previous notion of the idea. Especially when it comes to words like God and so on. So that's the real challenge, redefining to the point that many people call me the rabbi of atheists. Because a lot of atheists see me as their mentor. I mean, you say, one second, he's a believer, talks about God. You say, his God I have no problem with. I've heard this from people. I'm not saying this to toot my own. I'm saying it as a fact. Why? Because I understand where they're coming from. Because I also have those questions. But then you come to say those questions apply to the wrong God. They say when Nietzsche said God is dead, he was referring to a God that he came to realize was never alive in the first place. It was a wrong God. So he didn't kill God. He exposed a God that was never alive in the first place, or never relevant. The humorists like to say, God, Nietzsche said God is dead. And the second half of that is God said Nietzsche is dead. But that's a, another point. So what you're getting into when you go in this, this direction is you realize, oh, one second here. Maybe I have to review the whole definition of it all. And yes, if you come to an understanding that is the essence of all reality, call it by whatever name you like. I don't even care if you use the word God. Words are meaningless unless you tell me what you mean by the word. Then I remember going on a flight. Nowadays you don't go on flights that often, but I was on a flight from east to west coast. And I'm very intrigued by these nature shows. It happened to be something like a show, what was the show like? Yeah, the, in one hour, in 60 minutes, the history of, the, of uh, life from the beginning of the Big Bang. And I counted, I kid you not, I think it was on Discovery Channel or Nature Channel, one of these channels. I counted, the word miracle was used over 120 times throughout this program. The miracle of nature. I remember just for example, how did the monkey, the ape, begin to walk upright? Because there was a famine and the usual berries and, uh, and shrubs and other things that apes and monkeys would eat were not accessible, so they had to reach up higher on the tree. So they would reach up. As they reached up, they became walking upright over time. The miracle of that famine. A miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And I said to myself, one second, miracle is a fine word. If people define miracle, you know, usually miracles connected to divine miracle, to something supernatural. But they, I know what they meant. They didn't mean that miracle. They meant a miracle like something unique happened. A twist of fate. So I said, so you're just using different language to explain the writing of a book. Instead of saying an author wrote it, you're saying there was a miracle. Something happened that caused this word to be written, that word to be written. But I know where they're coming from because God has become so contaminated that most people don't want to have a relationship with the God that was taught to us by parents and grandparents and by religious authorities because it was 
associated with everything that is negative. A knee-jerk reaction. You say the word religion, and I've tested this. Tell me words that associate. People say fear, punishment, judgment, condescension, dogma, conformity. Not one word of those words. Who wants to associate with such words? Say the word spirituality. People say free spirit, energy, transcendence, music, soul. There's statistics that show in the United States and maybe the same most Western countries, maybe all countries, that 90% of Americans believe in some form of God and soul. 40% associate with a religion. That's a big discrepancy because people don't see religion as spiritual. And some will even say the more spiritual, the less religious. The more religious, the less spiritual. They see spirit as music is associated, soul, with spirituality much more than religion. Religion is seen at best as a, a system, community, laws, rules, rituals, ritual without the SPI before it. And at best, it keeps people in line, a sense of nurturing, a sense of care, ex- things you can expect, the holiday is coming, and it brings out a lot of virtue and generosity and charity and all that that becomes. But there's also another side to it, because it's lacking that vitality and passion that spirit is meant to bring to get into it. So of course, when you have such a dichotomy, you'll create, it'll create a dissonance between God and us. Then what do I need God? I'll figure out how to be spiritual without a God. So to let's sum up what we've been saying is this. Can you prove God's existence? My answer is, it depends how you define God and depends how you define proof. If you say proof is, how, how do you prove that you have love for somebody? And you use those rules of proof? Not, I'm not talking about the proof of in, an, in a laboratory. Experiential proof. Then the answer is yes, with a second caveat, if you define God as what I described. If you're going to look for a God, someone with this long white beard, balding man, who's vengeful and punitive and angry, you may never find such a God. So there I would say you can't prove God's existence because the God you're looking for doesn't exist or is a myth or a complete fabrication in children's minds without real thought or adult minds for that matter. And what depends what kind of proof you're using. You're using regular proof you're going to find them with a telescope or with other instruments? Absolutely not. But if you tell me that God is the essence of reality and the essence of spirit and everything that exists, that every piece of this existence is part of God's choreography, he is the author and the composer and the architect and the engineer and the artist And the proof is not through this type of tangible sensory proof, but recognizing and sensing something beyond, then the answer is yes. So really the answer to the question is up to us, how we define God and how we define proof. And frankly, proof is not even a necessity when you experience something. Does someone who's in love need to be hooked up to uh, sensors to know that they're in love? When you're listening to music and it touches you and it lifts you and it transports you to another time and place. And someone said, prove it to me. So I said, okay, let's go into a lab, connect me to all these sensors, to my brain, to my heart, to my, all that. And you see, the pulse went up. You see, my blood pressure went up. You see stimulation. 
Then suddenly you'll say, oh, now I have proof that music touches me. We don't need that. I experience it. My answer would be, you want to know if music touches you? Listen to it and tell me what it does. You say, maybe I'm being manipulated. Maybe, maybe not. These are part of the risks of life. There are a lot of things. Love. Yes, if you go to the pure, raw, biological definition, especially of Schopenhauer, love, there's nothing romantic about it. It's just the way species connect to breed. It's actually very anti-romantic. So there's also a thing called experiential proof. I love my children. You want to dismiss it into some type of scientific, some type of uh, chemical reaction? Some people want to do that, by all means. But is that how we're going to live our lives? Listen, I remember years ago saying, proof? You want proof? Can you prove we exist? Maybe all this is a program. Remember when the Matrix came out? Everybody was thinking that way. Maybe this is a program. Maybe this whole thing is an illusion. And any proof you bring is also part of the illusion. You disprove that. You can't disprove that. There's no way to disprove it. I think, therefore, I am. But maybe your thinking is an illusion. So to say that everything is defined by proof, I'm making another point now, is also not correct. I would submit that most of the areas of life that are important to us, vital, are not provable. The love for the people we love, spouses, children, family members, friends, the truths we hold, cherish, which we cherish, the inalienable rights of human beings, the soul, things that touch us, the legacies we want to leave, things actually, many of them emerging now during this pandemic, because as the material world has been shaken up, we look to those inner values. All of those things are not subject to proof. And yet we accept them because there's something about us that it resonates with us. Can it be manipulated? Can you argue that someone's manipulating your emotional being? Of course you can argue that. But I think also an intelligent person at some point comes to recognize that I don't want to live a life of mind games and arguments. You want to debate the issue? Everything I said in this program can be debated. Yes, I'm the first to admit it. We want to sit here and play chess. For every proof of God, you can bring a proof that maybe God doesn't exist. Look at the Holocaust. Look at how many senseless, senseless injustice, senseless deaths, so many things that don't make sense. Why take a parent and cause them to have Alzheimer's? You want to kill the person, kill the person, let them die. Why do they have to suffer like that? Human suffering. And on and on. So if you want to stick sit with just argue the point, this is what we do when we want to justify our positions or we don't want to make a decision. We all know that game. Or maybe not everybody. I know that game. If I want to find excuses and justify my position, I can, I can give you a whole array, a whole line of arguments, and you'll never get to me. But if we're going to be a little honest with ourselves, and that's only you can make that decision, you start saying, did I create myself? Did my, did my, did the, my parents create themselves? Did the trees create themselves? Is there some deeper purpose? Is there some deeper essence? To say absolutely no, I don't see any person, intelligent person can make that statement. Some say it may be, but I don't have proof. It may be, but I don't need it because I found the answers other ways. Fine. Or like Aldous Huxley said, I'm not interested in going that direction. I have another way to live my life. Many people don't think twice. I said before, first people of faith, even with a God, don't necessarily follow what God expects of them. 
Which brings me to one final point, and that is an interesting statement in the, in the, in the Talmud. When Moses was being taught Torah by God, they came to the verse, it says, after God created all the creation, came now to creating the human being. Let us create man, the human, in the divine image. Us. Moses turns to God and says, us, by leaving the word us and not let I, you're leaving room for people to say there's a duality. There's, not one, there's no one God, there's many. What's the us? Why are you writing that? The response is bizarre. God responds by saying, those that want to make a mistake, let them make a mistake. One second. He's intentionally putting a word in so people should make a mistake? The answer is, however, very profound. God created an agnostic universe. The Ariza of Isaac Luria, the great 16th century mystic, explains it with the concept, the secret of the tzimtzum, the divine concealment of God's divine consciousness to allow another presence. In other words, everything that leaves us doubt, agnostic, atheist, those that want to make a mistake, make a mistake, it's part of God's plan. When I first learned that, it actually upset all my atheistic inclinations. Because I said, oh wow, that's brilliant. Now we have an explanation, a divine explanation, why we don't, can't prove God's existence. How do you get around that one? No one can disprove that. Maybe that's exactly what God wanted. Not maybe, yes, that's what he was telling Moses. I am creating a world where they will be able, people will be able to deny that I exist or have their own distortions of me because that's what I want. I want a universe not of puppets and robots and machines that follow my, the puppeteer's guidelines. I want them to think on their own. And I want them to be wise enough to come to discover because it's not airtight. Let them search. Let them seek the human being. And let them find, and they will find me, and I will find them. I found that to be actually quite eloquent. That is, wow, that's interesting. Am I going to prove? How could I prove it? If God himself said, those that want to make a mistake, you can't prove it, but you can present this case. And then you say to myself, then you say to yourself, one second, I'm a partner in this process. I'm either a partner in the charade by giving in and saying, okay, I made a mistake and I don't, I don't really care about anything beyond myself and my interests and needs. Or I follow my transcendent voice. There is something more and I'm seeking it and I want to connect with it. And we do this all the time. We just call it music or art or intimacy or sexuality or love or travel. That's all part of our transcendent needs. Not just survivors. We're not just survival people. The ones that want to, those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake. So God created an agnostic universe. And there's plenty in this world where we can deny God's existence or even have arguments and complain about God's plans and say, why, why, why did you allow this? Why did you allow that? Or we take a second option, and that's our choice. The option is, I don't understand God's ways because I'm not God. I'm a peace, and there's something far greater than me. That's what Abraham came to discover through a process of elimination. I know that I'm not God. I know this table is not God. I know the sun and the moon are not God. I know the cosmos are not God because they're all an extension of some created reality. So through process of elimination, Abraham came to the conclusion 
I, a piece of the big picture, trying to determine what the big picture is like? It's illogical. The part doesn't define the whole. The whole defines the part. And Abraham came to that realization. And this is the ultimate proof, is that you have to shut down your senses. You have to shut down your inclination and your temptation to want to understand everything. Not like a fool, but like the wise person who realizes that faith is not the absence of reason. It goes beyond. It takes us to a place that we come to realize a deeper truth. You're standing in awe of it. You don't want to own and control it because then it's yours. Then you're creating a God in your image. You want the human to be in the image of God, meaning the part should be defined by the whole, not the whole should be defined by the part. That's what Abraham realized. I don't like the word surrender, but he surrendered. He essentially suspended his little box to realize and absorb a higher reality. And that was beyond proof. Proof at the end of the day, you could prove it, you could disprove it. He didn't want a God that is the result of his mathematical equations. Then it would be a God that's a result of an equation. A, result, a God that's a result of my logic. I want a God that's a result of me? That's not, that's not a God worthy of connecting with. I want a God that I'm a result of him. Or her, or beyond him and her. And that's the ultimate experience. Now when you experience that, and especially if it's not tainted by any of the biases or any of what's called religious abuse, to be honest, or religious addiction, or all the stereotypes that are connected with God and religion, that's something that I believe everybody will, would embrace. The problem is we have experiences that have contaminated, yes, toxified God in our lives. The word God. The God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. So the, the goal is to free ourselves from our past definitions. Seek out a new, fresh one that you can relate to. I have an excellent chapter, I believe, in the book Toward a Meaningful Life called God that goes through this whole discussion in a more methodical and more condensed way. Check that out. And allow yourself to experience something new. It's actually an interesting adventure. And if you can shed past negative experiences and embrace and say, Yes, I don't want a God that's dead because he was never alive. I want a God that was always alive, a true living God. Then you'll see the proof will be there more than any logical proof. It'll be part of your experience. It'll be as real as you feel you are real and even more than you. The essence of you, the essence of everything. Deeper than any love, deeper than any other experience because you come to realize that you yourself have divine transcendent elements that are also not subject to proof. And proof actually is created by God. Logic and proof becomes a creation of God's, not one that creates God. There's so much more that can be said on this. And of course the implications are ultimately our relationship with this essential element. So God's not out there, He's right in here. The essence of you, the essence of me, the essence of everything, and beyond the essence. The expression God fills all of existence, but all of existence does not define God because it's also beyond that. So I hope I did some justice to this vital topic. And uh, please stay in touch. This has been Simon Jacobson, MeaningfulLife.com, our website with a full array of resources, a calendar, literally daily programming on topics like this. If you like these words, please share them. Send us your feedback, suggestions. We're all part of this larger reality. And hopefully you can really build a true and lasting relationship with this divine, 
whatever word you want to use for it. Thank you again, and be blessed. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.